Hey everyone, and welcome to the Bethlehem Church of Christ podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope that today's message encourages and inspires you and helps you on your journey to discover and follow the will of God. The outline of this message, speaker, message title, and series can be found in the show notes or the details page. Be sure to check us out on Facebook or on our church website at Bethlehem505.com. And now, here is the message. So get your sermon notes page out, and also turn your Bible to Ephesians chapter 4. We will be looking at the first 16 verses. Together, Ephesians 4. Long before carefully planned and intricately designed weight loss programs... A doctor once told his overweight patient this. He said, eat regularly for two days and then skip a day. Keep repeating this schedule for two weeks, then come and see me, and I would guess you'll probably have lost at least five pounds by the time you come back. When the man returned, he had not only lost five pounds, he had lost 20 pounds. Dr. Ash, you did all this just by following my instructions? Man says, that's right. He goes, but I thought I was going to die on that third day. He goes, from hunger? And I goes, no. Did you ever try skipping for a whole day? <laughs> skipping, get it? Okay. Well, like that guy, um, I'm not real bright sometimes. But when I read the prescription that is given in Ephesians chapter 4, I believe that if we ever took Ephesians 4 even half seriously, amazing things would happen in our lives and in the church. You see, Ephesians 4 is all about how we need God and each other. It's not an either or. I believe we at Bethlehem right now, at this season, really need Ephesians 4. Because, like everyone else, we really need God and we really need each other. Rick Warren, in his book from quite a few years ago now, The Purpose Driven Life, says, You are called to belong, not just believe. Even in the perfect, sinless environment of Eden, God said it is not good for a man to be alone. We are created for community, fashioned for fellowship, formed for a family, and none of us can fulfill God's purposes by ourselves. The Bible knows nothing of solitary saints or spiritual hermits, isolated from other believers and deprived of fellowship. The Bible says we are put together, joined together, built together, members together, heirs together, fitted together, and held together, and will be caught up together. You're not on your own anymore. He says, while your relationship to Christ is personal, God never intends for it to be private. Now I'm going to interrupt the quote to repeat that one. While your relationship to Christ is personal, God never intends it to be private. In God's family, you are connected 
to every other believer and we still belong to each other and we will belong to each other for eternity. End of quote. Together. Together. So let's look this morning at God's prescription for healthy relationships with Him and healthy relationships with each other as He reveals it to us in Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. First thing you'll notice on your outline is that we are to rejoice together in Christ. We're to rejoice together in Christ. Verse 3 in Ephesians 4 says this, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now, how do we achieve that as imperfect but forgiven Christians or sinners? Well, we're going to do something odd here. We're going to move backward from verses 8 through 10 back to verse 1. <clears throat> and hopefully that will make sense uh, when we actually do it. But point A reminds us, that we celebrate a common hope. We celebrate a common hope as Christians. You know, we focus on the incredible forgiveness and hope that Christ has given us. Verse 4 says, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. Well, where did we get that hope? Well, verse 7 speaks of grace. But to each one of us, Grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. Grace. In other words, a grace that saves us that we read about in chapter 2. But then verses 8 through 10, I think, are the two most confusing verse or three most confusing verses in all of Ephesians uh, 4. Verses 8 through 10 says this. This is why it says, and it quotes from the Old Testament, When he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. (laughs) I read this and I go, say what? (laughs) Well, verse 8 is quoting from Psalm 68, verse 18. And the image there is of a victory parade back in those days in which a conquering king would return home with a parade of POWs and the spoils of war to show off to all the people back home. And by using this image, it is saying that Jesus, that's who it's referring to here, came here and he defeated Satan and then he brought to God former POWs that he had rescued from sin, people like us. And it says he gave gifts. He gave the gift of freedom and salvation and the abilities we use to serve him, as we'll see in verse 11 and following. But most importantly, Jesus, in winning our victory and rescuing us, gave us hope. You see, we can be together and unified because we share the same hope. Verses 4 through 6 are verses we opened our service with today says there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to, one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Rubel Shelley wrote of those verses. He said, one body made up of everyone who has the one Holy Spirit living in them. We share the same hope, have the same Lord controlling us, the same faith from the teaching of the Bible. We've experienced the one baptism and have the same heavenly Father. 
So when we share that same hope, that common hope, we can be one despite our diversity. So we celebrate a common hope, but we also celebrate a common attitude. And this is where it gets a little trickier uh, because people are people. (laughs) And we sometimes have attitude issues. But verse 2 is very direct and very blunt and very needed. Verse 2 says this, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Do you realize that this verse, if taken seriously, will prevent most church problems in any church? It'll prevent most problems in a family. It'll prevent most problems in the workplace and in neighbor relationships and everything else. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Colossians 3 says something quite similar, but a little more extensive. In verses 12 and 13, it says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And then it says, Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. That will take care of most problems in any church. That will take care of most problems in any family and in any workplace. The right attitudes. So why should we have humility? Quite simply because I am a sinner and you're a sinner and we are only saved by the grace of God. And that means I need to be patient with you when you don't live up to my expectations or God's and when you need to be patient with me when I don't live up to your expectations or God's. So we are gentle and patient with each other because God has been gentle and patient with us. He bears with us. And too often we don't do the same with others. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. You see, that kind of attitude, when that's obvious, when that kind of attitude, when verse 2 is evident in a church, in a family, in a marriage, wherever, it causes people to enjoy being around us. (laughs) If we are like verse 2 describes, people will enjoy being around us. If we are the opposite of those things, people don't want to spend time with us. And in the same way, churches that exemplify verse 2 are churches people want to be a part of. So verse 3 says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now that implies that it's not always easy to do so, but we are to to, uh, each take the initiative ourselves. no matter what others do, we're going to make every effort because it's worth the effort. We celebrate a common attitude. And when verse 2 is evident in our lives, good things happen. But also, point C, we celebrate in the church a common lifestyle. This is also tricky at times. Verse 1 says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. In other words, a life worthy of what Jesus did for us. A pattern of life that shows we appreciate Jesus' death for us. It's a life worthy. 
Now we're not going to take time, but you can actually turn to verse 17 and read to the end of the chapter, and it describes what that worthy life look, looks like. So here's a self-evaluation question. Am I living worthy of the gospel? Am I living worthy of the gospel? Let me tell you a frightening trend I see in the American church, and probably the Western church, and that is for people in the church to barely live any differently from people in the world. In other words, we look, act, talk, and dress like absolutely everybody else on earth, whether they know God or not. And that's a problem. Because verse 1 says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. So let's just be real blunt. Let's not trash the name of Jesus with our careless living. Together, we should encourage each other to live a distinctive lifestyle, celebrating the privilege of living at a higher level because we know Jesus and because he has forgiven us of our sins. We rejoice together in Christ, especially when we live like him. Here's the second one that I think especially applies to us working together this coming week. And that is that we join together in service. This is a major part of the middle part of this passage in Ephesians 4. Verses 11 through 13 describe some temporary offices and permanent offices in the church and what their role is. It says, it was he, and that's speaking of Jesus from the previous verse, it was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. And then it tells why, verse 13, 12. To prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Each of us is different, but we serve the same master. We have different abilities, but we work toward the same mission. We are each to serve in the church. You see, as point A says, joint service, us serving together, is God's plan. That's always been God's plan. Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. He's the performer of miracles. He's victorious over sin and death. He's the hope of the world. And yet Jesus, the King of Kings, still chose to work through human beings and to work with human beings. It's striking to me that Jesus poured a ton of time into 12 men during most of his ministry. He worked with a lot of people, taught a lot of people, but he, he spent most of his time with 12 people. So Jesus influenced 12 people, worked with 12 people, and then that 12 became 120 in Acts 1. Then that 120 became 3,000 at the end of chapter 2 of Acts. And then by chapter 4 of Acts, they had become 5,000 plus, and that was not counting the women and children. So Jesus chose to work with and through people, people like us. Now there's an interesting uh, little passage in Acts chapter 8. It starts, uh, or, or chapter 7 ends with the um, stoning to death of Stephen. 
And, of course, Saul of Tarsus, who becomes Paul the Apostle, was there participating in it. And here's what it says as chapter 8 opens up after Stephen has been murdered. It says, And Saul approved of their killing him. That's our introduction to the Apostle Paul. <laughs> On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Now here's the verse I really want us to, to focus on, and we'll leave it up just a couple more minutes too um, after I get after done reading this. Those who have been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Now what verse 4 is saying is that the church members became separated from the apostles, the church leaders. All right, now catch that. The church members were separated from the apostles, the church leaders. But this became a positive thing because you see 12 apostles preaching, teaching, and baptizing in Jerusalem alone was never going to fulfill Jesus' commission. So God spread them out through persecution. It says those who had been scattered, this is the average church members. These are not church leaders. The average church members were scattered and preached the word wherever they went. So verse 11 in our text says, It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers. God intended for the apostles and the prophets who were guided by special revelation from God to found his church and provide authority and give us the Bible to guide us after they were gone. And then God put in place permanent church leaders, the evangelists, pastor, teachers, to build on that foundation that the apostles had started. And then their role was to train Christians to do the work of the church. Look again at verse 11 and 12. Some to be apostles, some to be pastors and teachers. Why? To prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. The role of a church leader, be it my role, an elder or deacon, even a teacher, I think, the role of a church leader is to prepare every single church member to serve in their own unique way in the church. That's the role of church leaders. That's the primary role of church leaders. Church leaders are not only to shepherd the flock, they're to equip people to serve. And I think there's a false idea that sometimes rolls around in the church that a good church leader is one who does the most work in the church. Now that may be true because a leader ought to be an example. And I'll be serving and doing a lot. But I think the better, more biblical idea is that a good church leader is the one who not only serves, but consistently trains and motivates and equips the most different people to serve in the church. See, when I'm not equipping and training you all to serve, I'm not doing my job. So not only should I not apologize for asking you to serve, I should be encouraging it and showing you how and giving you ways to serve and showing you how to do it. It has always been God's plan for all his people to work together to accomplish things. I want you to turn back to a, a section that you might view as boring in the Old Testament. 1 Chronicles 23. Now, we're not going to read all this because I'm, I'm referring to... Um, Quite a few chapters here. 
But basically from 22 to 29, or 23 to 29, we see this principle at work. See, earlier in the Old Testament, when they had the tabernacle, remember the tent they traveled with in the wilderness, the worship tent? There were huge numbers of people that served in that tabernacle. And then the priests and Levites throughout the Old Testament all had responsibilities. Everyone had specific jobs within the kingdom of God. And together they carried out those responsibilities. But what's fascinating to me is if you're there, in 1 Chronicles 23 through 29, you read a bunch of temple servants and officials. Chapters 23 and 24 lists Levites and all the roles they had in the church. Chapter 25 lists uh, a bunch of musicians that would lead in the worship in the church. And I like verses 6 through 8. It says, all these men were under the supervision of their fathers for the music of the temple of the Lord with cymbals and lyres and harps for the ministry at the house of God. Asaph and Jeduthun and Heman were under the supervision of the king along with their relatives, all of them trained and skilled in music for the Lord. They numbered 288. Young and old alike, teacher as well as student, cast lots for their duties. Everyone was serving. So you have all the singers. Then in chapters Chapter 26, you read about the gatekeepers and, uh, and th their role and how everyone had their part and their gate and, and all that to serve. Uh, then you get to the treasury, the treasurers and other officials. Then you come to chapter 27, and it's the army that played a key role in the nation of Israel, the military divisions, the officers, the king's cabinet. And then after a personal thing in chapter 28, you have chapter 29, which shows that everybody in the kingdom of God supported the work financially. Everybody. You see, together they accomplished God's great work, together with everyone doing their part. Well, there's a similar story in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a fascinating book. They came back after uh, many years away in exile. The city of Jerusalem was in ruins. The city wall was broken down. And the whole book is about, mostly about rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. Jerusalem's walls had sat in ruins for a hundred years. Enemies were waiting to stop the rebuilding. Uh, they had limited resources. They had little building experience. This was 2,400 years ago with no modern building equipment. And yet they built the entire city wall in 52 days. Now how in the world did they do that? Well, I'll tell you how they did it. Every single member of Israel that was back in Jerusalem did something to help. Every single one. So chapter 3 is interesting to me because it just lists a whole bunch of different kind of people who were all doing their part building the wall. There were priests. There were perfume makers. You can read all these in chapter 3. There were jewelers that left their jewelry store and were out putting stones up to build the wall. There were businessmen. There were ruling officials. There were common men and there were common women. Some of them dug. Some of them removed rubble. Others lifted stones. Others uh, mixed mortar. Still others cooked for the workers. And the key phrase all through Nehemiah 3 is, and next to him and next to him, and next to them. And it will list a family. They're repairing this part of the wall. And next to them was this jeweler uh, who was preparing this section of the wall. And next to him was this businesswoman, and she was helping repair the wall. Do you get the picture? Together, together, they got it done. 
And that's why God intends for every person in his church today to do their part, and that's what our VBS takes every single year. It's not too late for you to say, yes, God, yes, God, I will accept your invitation to serve in some way this week. Joint service has always been God's plan. But also, joint service obviously accomplishes more. Ephesians 4, verse 16, uh, concludes our section here, and I love how this each one and everyone and together keeps coming up. It says, from him, from Jesus, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. I'm just going to ask you bluntly, are you doing your part at Bethlehem? If you call Bethlehem home, are you doing your part at Bethlehem? Read about a five-year-old boy who was making his first trip out to a farm. And he saw his first pig that was considerably larger than this one down here. <laughs> he saw a humongous sow nursing her pigs. A little while later, the farmer made a comment about that big sow and said to the little boy, she's mighty big, isn't she? The little boy says, you bet. And I just saw nine piggies blowing her up a little while ago. This city boy just saw him, <laughs> thought that's how she got so big. <laughs> that's what God intends to happen in the church for every one of us to do our little part. <laughs> Years ago, I clipped this from someplace, and I've used it so many times, I can't remember where I got it. It says, in the family of God, we all need each other. Why do we need each other? Basically because we are all imperfect and incomplete, incapable of doing alone what God intends to accomplish in the church. God has desired that in the church we demonstrate what He can do through us. What God wants to do in this world is so great that none of us can do it alone. We literally need one another to accomplish for the Lord what He wants done in the world. End of quote. And I ask you the question, are you doing your part? Paul Dockery wrote for years in the sports section of the Cincinnati Inquirer, and I love this illustration he gave about football. He said, football is a business, but it's not like other businesses. It's a fraternity, a regiment, a loose band of men who need each other more than most co-workers do. And listen to what he says. He goes, if you don't block, I can't run. If you don't blitz, I can't cover my physical well-being is in your hands. If you don't do your job, mine becomes harder. Folks, that's not just football. That's exactly, totally true in the church. If you don't attend, it affects others. And I mean, you might be sick or in the hospital. You might be on vacation three states away, but it still affects other people when you're not here. If you don't serve, it affects others. If you sit back and wait for everyone else, things don't get done. When you don't bring your children, other uh, children and programs will be affected. It's all tied together. But when we work together, like we normally do on VBS, everyone benefits and God's church is powerful and effective and influential 
So I ask you, can we count on you? One of my most often repeated church newsletter columns is one that I simply entitle, We. And I probably first wrote this maybe back in the 1980s, and I bet I've run it in the church newsletter maybe every six or seven years since then. Here's what it says, and I'll make adjustments now and then. Speaking of the church, the proper term is we. We are the Bethlehem Church of Christ, not they. We are a family. We need each other. One person may serve in the nursery while another serves as a greeter or in the choir. One may clean while another mows or makes repairs. Still others serve as teachers, shepherds, musicians, deacons, or preparing meals. But the term is still we. We will rise or fall together. If we are not as evangelistic as God desires, we need to do something about it. If our Bible school needs strengthened, we need to do our part to strengthen and improve it. If Bethlehem is not the praying church it needs to be, we must work and pray to develop that. If there are people at Bethlehem that we do not know, we must take the initiative to speak, sit with them, or invite them into our home. If our buildings and grounds aren't adequately cared for, we need to step up and do our part. And finally, we must work together. We are a team. We are God's children. We are far from perfect, but are forgiven through the blood of Jesus. We are family. And then I ask in the worst grammar I can muster, are you we? Are you we? Ephesians 4.16 says, From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part, each part, does its work. We join together in service. But finally, we grow together, and this is important, in truth and love. <clears throat> Verse 13 through 15 again says, Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, and then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head. That is Christ. Paraphrase, those three verses are saying it's time for everybody in the church to grow up. <laughs> so you see, immaturity is dangerous, especially spiritual immaturity. Verse 14 is an interesting image. It says, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching. It's the image of just stuff blowing all over the place. And I don't know how many of you have ever been in our foyer out here on a really windy day when someone opens the front door of the foyer and the back door of the foyer at the same time and the wind just whooshes through there and papers fly off the counters and everything. It happens three or four times a year that the timing hits just right and the wind's just right outside and it's a mess. And I think that's kind of the image that Paul is using here of what happens when we don't know what we believe or why we believe it. And we don't really know what the Bible says. We can get blown all over the place if we're not well-grounded in Bible teaching and in our relationship with God. See, we can bounce from one fad to another, one interest to another, or one doctrine to another. 
And there is a lot of deception out there. We talked about this a little bit in our Sunday school class in 1 Timothy this morning. There's a lot of deception out there. And there's a lot of false teaching out there. And there's a lot of false religions out there that are wrong, according to the Bible. You know, Jesus warned very directly about false teachers in Matthew 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. Everybody always likes to look at the love parts, but he warns about false teachers in, in the Sermon on the Mount. He warned in John 16 on the last night he had with his apostles, he warned about the dangers of false teachers. The book of Colossians was written about false teaching. 1 John, the epistle, was addressing false teaching. 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus are about false teaching and about understanding true biblical beliefs. You see, it matters what we believe. We can fall into the trap, if we're not careful, of being decent, nice, church-attending, moral, mediocre people who aren't sure what we believe or why we believe it, and then we never really experience an alive, personal, victorious life in Jesus Christ that's grounded in His absolute truth. So that's why it says, until we all reach unity of the, in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. And let me remind you that we have classes to study the Bible at 9.30 every Sunday for this very purpose of these two or three verses. Verse 15 goes on to say, Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. You see what God does when we are moving from immaturity to maturity spiritually? God grows us through truth and love. It's a package. It's a package, truth and love. I want you to notice how the epistle of 2 John opens up. I want you to notice how often it uses the word love and how often it uses the word truth. The elder to the lady chosen by God and to her children whom I love in the truth. And not only, not I only, but also all who know the truth because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son will be with us in truth and love. It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. And now, dear lady, I am not, I am not writing you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another, and this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. Truth and love. Love and truth. It's never, never, never one or the other. I can remember a time when I was growing up that uh, the restoration movement tended sometimes to emphasize the truth a lot more than the love. Now I think the tendency for several years has been let's talk about love, 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 and let's ignore the truth. God never intended for them one to be higher than the other. Truth and love are equally important in the eyes of God. They're both God's nature, and they both should be the nature of his followers and of the church. Truth and love. And there are seven truths that we already read twice, I guess, already today in verses 4 through 6. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father 
of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. You see, those truths right there are what should unite us. And as long as we focus on those things, we won't get caught up in other things that tend to divide us. Let's focus on the absolute truth with love. Love and truth together. I like how John R. W. Stott put it. He said, since Christian love is founded on Christian truth, we shall not increase the love which exists um, between us by diminishing the truth which we hold in common. We must never compromise the very truth on which alone true love and unity depend. So we at Bethlehem will always commit ourselves to firmly holding to biblical teaching. We do not compromise, but how we handle it and how we share it must always, always, always be governed with loving words and loving attitudes. Instead, speaking the truth in love, verse 15 says, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. That individual growth on our part is going to look something like this. It's going to look something like verse 2 in our life. We become humble. We become gentle. We become patient. We bear with one another in love. Uh, it becomes evident when you and I are growing individually. It becomes evident in our church. In verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. It becomes evident in verse 14 that we're growing when we're no longer easily misled by false ideas or deception. It's noticeable also in verse 16 when we make progress by all working together, each doing our part. But the greatest evidence that you and I are growing in our faith is that we start to look a bit more and a bit more and a bit more like Jesus in our life. I understand that on a wall near the main entrance at the Alamo in San Antonio, Texas, a man's portrait hangs. And the inscription tells why this portrait's here, and it's a fascinating story. Underneath this portrait, it says, James Butler Bonham. And then it says, no picture of him exists. And then it says, this portrait is of his nephew, Major James Bonham, deceased, who greatly resembled his uncle. It is placed here by the family, now notice this, that people may know the appearance of the man who died for freedom. You know, no real portrait of Jesus has ever existed by an eyewitness. <clears throat> so none of us, none of us, except the ones that live with him, actually knew what he looked like. But God intends for you and me to look more and more like Jesus' life so others can see something in us of the man who died on a cross for their freedom. So they look at us and they go, that's what Jesus looks like. Jesus gave his life so that we could have new life in him. Ephesians 1.7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. You see, Jesus' entire body went to the cross and suffered for us so that we could be together with God and others. Together. As we prepare to sing our song of decision this morning, I want us to think through where we've been in this message and where we've been in this chapter. Do you have attitude issues? Verse 2 that you need to work on? Do you have division issues? Verse 3 that you need to work on? Do you know what you believe and why you believe it? Or do you need to work on uh, 
what verses 13 through 15 talk about? Or how about these two crucial questions? How is your relationship with God? And how is your relationship with God's people? See, both are vitally important. How are your, how's your relationship with God? How's your relationship with God's people? And finally, there's a question at the bottom of your page. Much like that. It says, is your life together with God and his people? Is your life together? In other words, you're together with God. You're together with his people, serving completely, wholeheartedly, together because we love God together. We're serving him together. We're making a difference for him together. So I don't know what your decision uh, needs to be this morning, um, but I know as we sing the song, I need to think about myself and where I'm at, and you think about where you are. And let's prayerfully consider what God needs us to do, change, say, <laughs> whatever it is, uh, today in light of what he has taught us in Ephesians 4. Thank you for listening to the Bethlehem Church of Christ podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and think others can benefit from it, we encourage you to share it on social media, subscribe to our podcast, or leave us a rating and review on the podcast platform you use. You can also connect with us online at Bethlehem505.org or find us on Facebook. Please join us next time as we each seek to understand God's word and follow his son, Jesus Christ.